You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a political and business consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast today is Nathan Carson. Nathan is the inventory control manager at Chemical Dynamics, which is a family-owned and operated liquid fertilizer manufacturing company based in Central Florida. Uh, Before rejoining his family's business, he worked for EY's global agribusiness team in Chicago and specialized in identifying megatrends that are driving the future of agriculture. Uh, Unsurprisingly, we're going to be talking about the geopolitics of food. Uh, We did an earlier episode on this topic with Neil Townsend, and this is sort of uh, in the same sort of vein, and we're super appreciative of Nathan coming on and giving some of his excellent perspectives about problems, but also potentially solutions for some of the, the issues we're seeing in global food supply chains. If you have the time or the inclination, please go to whatever platform you're listening to us on. Leave us a review, rate us. It helps us immensely. Check us out at perchperspectives.com. If you're new to the podcast, you can sign up for our free twice a week newsletter, learn more about the company and learn more about the services that Perch Perspectives provides businesses and policymakers and executives. As always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, midlife crises, philosophical quandaries, anything, feel free to email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I read everything that comes through and I try to respond to everything that comes through as well. Remember to be careful out there, wear your masks. If you're in the United States, as I said at the beginning of the last podcast, please register to vote. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for, but it is supremely important that you register to vote and make your voice heard. Um, All elections are important, but I think this one is particularly important. Otherwise, shower the people you love with love, and we will see you out there. So, I mean, I think that food and geopolitics have always been tied together. Um, Like certainly at the height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union were using food in different ways in order to prop up their own systems. Um, I've been doing a lot of research lately on um, the Lyndon B. Johnson administration's sort of treatment of food aid with India. You know, at a certain point they were blocking food aid because Johnson didn't like what India had said about Vietnam. So how do you think about Um, the relationship between geopolitics and food then? And what do you think has changed recently that worries you in that space? Or has anything changed? Have have we gone back to the way things were before globalization took off? Food security is a matter of national security because we all have to eat. And if you can't eat, really awful and terrible things happen. One of the things that really sparked off the Arab Spring protests was actually a breakdown of Russia's food system back in August of 2010 due to droughts and fires. Because of this massive extreme weather events, which many attribute to climate change in Russia, it knocked out about 40% of Russia's grain production. And because of that, Russia stopped all exports. Now, Russia accounts for about 15% of the world's uh, grain market. And so this is where it gets interesting. We start following the links because the Arab world imports is the largest food importer per capita out of anywhere. Egypt is the largest importer of food per capita out of any nation in the world. And most of the grain that the Arab world and Egypt is importing all comes from Russia. And so when you think about the massive spike to food prices in the Arab world, in Egypt, and the toppling of governments and the unrest that we see in this region, a lot of it comes down to high food prices, creating a catalyst for instability and change. Father of the Green Revolution and Nobel Peace Prize winner Norman Borlaug said it best, you can't build a world on empty stomachs and human misery. You just can't. Food security 
is a matter of national security. Yeah, and I, I think for so long, uh, sort of global trade was what was going to assure national security for everyone. We were we were going towards a world where we weren't going to think in terms of food as a part of national security, but where food and we've had enough food to feed everyone in, over in the world with something I forget what the exact UN stat is, but I'm pretty sure we could feed everyone with 2,500 calories a day if we just allocated the food that's in the world correctly. But as you're saying, it becomes a political issue, and I mean. Egypt is one, I think when people think of Egypt, they think of a big country on the map, but it's really just a sliver of territory on the Nile River about the size of Maryland, and you squeeze 100 million people into it, and you get exactly what you're talking about. It goes from being a breadbasket to an importer. Just to underscore your point as well, um, the Syrian civil war was also sparked by some of the the climate change and drought issues that you're you're speaking about here as well because in roughly 2008 2009 Syria was going through one of its most intense intense droughts on record ever and so a bunch of these young Sunni Arab farmers were going from the towns and they were going into the cities and these were the people that eventually revolted against Assad and then you know you get a couple steps from there and you get the rise of the Islamic state so as you're saying i think one of the hard things about thinking about the relationship between food and geopolitics is that it's not immediate. Something happens and it takes years for it to build up. But absolutely, some of those political conditions that create disjuncture or that break supply chains have their causes in, in these weather events or in these crop failures that end up having further implications down the road. And you're absolutely right, Jacob, because food security and food insecurity is a catalyst because you have the problems of political oppression. You have just the growing influence of radical jihad in the region and all these other factors, but it requires a catalyst to set off these massive civil unrest and uh, civil wars as we've seen in the re region. And that catalyst was food insecurity, was rising food prices. And you are absolutely right. We have designed our entire global economy, our entire agri-food system as a human species under the assumptions of certainty, under the assumptions of stability. And, you know, I think that's a bit foolish because how many of us have gone to bed every night and suddenly woken up the next morning and find out that one of our loved ones has passed away? I mean, shoot, how many people went to bed on September 10th only to wake up the morning of September 11th to find that the world as they knew it had fundamentally changed? And it can change just like that because instability, uncertainty, extreme risks are going to happen. Nobody saw COVID-19 was going to happen. And that's had massive, massive impacts across the entire global supply chain, from food to manufacturing to medical supplies, you name it. And we have to realize that instability, that risk, that disruption is going to happen. It's going to happen due to geopolitical shocks, to increasing trade tensions, to internal unrest, to financial and economic shocks, to pandemics, and of course, climate shocks. And so how do we design our agri-food system in such a way that it can absorb and rebound from these inevitable shocks? Yeah, I think I think COVID-19 is actually a great example because I mean, a lot of folks probably aren't thinking of it this way. But when China had its African swine fever outbreak, obviously that didn't affect humans. It, it killed something like half of China's pork herd um, in the span of a year or 18 months or whatever it was. And I think one of the reasons China was so reticent to be more forthcoming about COVID-19, and this is not a justification for it, but I think one of the reasons they were so reticent was because the Trump administration decided that they wanted to use African swine fever against China. They wanted to use that as a pressure point in the trade war and secure more Chinese purchases of U.S. agricultural goods 
uh, in the context of resetting U.S.-China relations. And I think that that's one of the reasons that China wasn't more forthcoming. And maybe if you didn't have that breakdown in, um, or if you didn't have African swine fever ep epidemic in China, or if the United States hadn't used that as a trade pressure point against China, maybe COVID-19 gets gets contained in Wuhan, but that's probably wishful thinking. Um, Nathan, I wanted to ask you about, because when we were talking about doing this podcast, you you sort of sent me some initial thoughts. And, and one of the, the thoughts that really stood out to me was you were talking about how agriculture needed to shift from a, a monoculture hub and spoke production model to a more diverse spiderweb production model that is integrated with local communities. I, I thought that was a great image and a great way of thinking about it. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. How is the current system built on the mono, monoculture hub and spoke production model help folks understand because um, you know food supply chains they're, they're huge and they're abstract and we just we see the product at the grocery store we don't see everything behind it so help me imagine you know what it means to have that hub and spoke production model and so to understand this hub and spoke production model we have to kind of take a step back and understand how do we even get here because the food supply chain the agri-food supply chains we have it is the result of very rational decisions it's not just something that we came up with overnight. It's the evolution um, and repetition of very logical policy decisions, of very logical market decisions, of individual action. And so the story of the agri-food system is in so many ways the story of humanity itself, because for millennia, humanity was just attempting to feed itself. It was sustenance, just basic survival. And it all changed around the advent of the Industrial Revolution, where suddenly with, by utilizing hydrocarbons and energy, we can produce far more than we ever imagined. And so humanity transitions from sustenance to abundance. And during the Green Revolution, that movement to abundance, especially when it came to food, hit the entire world. So the majority of people in the world now had abundance of food. Now, there are still so many millions of people. I think the numbers are around 700, 750 million people worldwide who are suffering from global food insecurity some of the latest figures, there's about 120 million people facing famine right now because of COVID-19. And so clearly not everybody um, is has that abundance. But as a whole, as a species, most people have some semblance of food security. But under that abundant system, it comes about how do you utilize those resources effectively? It's, it comes about economies of scale. It becomes about size. It's about organization. It's about how do you manage these resources? And that lends itself to a very strong industrialized approach to a growth in bureaucracy, whether that's a government bureaucracy or a corporate bureaucracy. But it requires these massive managerial systems to be able to manage these massively complex supply chains. And so you get giant production hubs. You have different regions specializing in different production areas. And to have a really good example of what we see in the agri-food system today you have about 60,000 pork producers, so hog farmers, I should say, but you only have about 15 um, hog processors actually processing the meat, and they produce, say, about 60% of U.S. pork production. So under COVID-19, when all these pork processing facilities began to shut down, it only takes a few, and suddenly 5, 10, 15, 20% of your entire pork processing production is just knocked offline because you have a very overly concentrated hub and spoke system that's designed for efficiency. And so, and that makes it very brittle. Yeah. And just to underscore some, some statistics that I found while I was prepping for this podcast, I mean, what, what you're talking about is really a, a process that has happened over the last century or even two centuries. And even if we're just talking about the agricultural system in the United States, 
I mean, between 1900 and 2000, for example, the share of the U.S. workforce that was involved in agriculture has declined from 41% to just 2%. And between just 1950 and roughly 2000, the average U.S. farm doubled in size, even though less than half of the farms remained. And, and to your point about the food supply chain being brittle, and I, I wrote an article about this way back when COVID-19 began, but uh, Megan Konar, who's a professor of civil engineering at the University of Illinois, has done a really great study, maybe we'll link to it in the description here, that shows that there are really just nine counties, I think seven, I think I have that right, I think seven of them are in California, are basically super central to the overall structure of the food supply network. And if you took even just one of those counties out, suddenly US food supply chains would break down in a really serious way. Um, it's crazy for me to imagine for two reasons. First of all, California's on fire right now. So I assume that we're going to be seeing some longer term food supply chain effects out of the, the wildfires that are affecting the West, but correct me if I'm wrong there. And number two, I'm, I'm recording from New Orleans today. It used to be back in the day that New Orleans was, you know, one of the biggest, richest cities in the United States, because it was the hub of the US agricultural trade. And I think that part of the decline of New Orleans as a city, and it's got a lot of different reasons, um, has to do with the way that agriculture is transformed here, where even you know, even the way that things were structured before isn't the way it's working, because as you said, we're, we're, we're focused on these different centers and everything relies on them. And you're absolutely right. And the over-concentration of these centers of these nodes, I mean, it's very logical. And we got to also step back and understand that our system is the envy of the world. The average American spends only 9% of their income on food that is the lowest at anywhere in the world. And that, and, and you think about consumption, you think about being able to spend your money on things like education and, and things like healthcare and housing, buying that new t-shirt, buying that new iPhone, etc. It's because you were spending such a small proportion of your income on food. And so we have a very efficient supply chain. I mean, we have access. I mean, who would have thought that we could get avocados whenever we wanted um, just 10 years ago, things like that. So we have a remarkably resilient and efficient supply chain. That doesn't mean it doesn't have its problems, but we have to sit back and admire the fact that we have such a productive and efficient supply chain that can get us food, whatever we want, whenever we want. Do you think that part of the problem then though, is that the food supply chain is focused so much on the consumer? Cause I mean, the farmer, uh, you know, the, the, the farmer is the one getting like eight cents on a dollar for the things that they're actually producing themselves. Um, you've got these huge agribusinesses now that get paid to transport and, and get food from point A to point B. And they're, even though they're not shouldering a lot of the risk there, they're the ones that are reaping a lot of the reward. I, I wonder if part of the problem here is that breakdown between, um, you know, valuing that the consumer can spend less on food versus making sure that a farmer is appropriately compensated for the hard work that goes into actually growing food in a sustainable way. You're absolutely right, Jacob, because some of the data from USDA suggests that the average farm income, um, the farmers were receiving about 37 cents on the dollar back in uh, 1981, and now they're receiving about 15 cents on the dollar as of 2017, 2018, roughly like that. And it was about 17, 18 cents on the dollar in about 1995. And so the amount of cents on the dollar, the revenue per dollar of food that farmers are receiving is increasingly going down and down and down. And it's remarkable too, when you think about how much government support is being pumped into the agri-food supply chain in the United States to keep farmers afloat, to keep them from going completely bankrupt. And so that number of food is per dollar is probably even lower. I, I don't know exactly how much that would be, but it probably is. 
And it does create some problems when our producers can't afford to produce anymore. And it's because we have completely divorced production from consumption. We've done that with our agri-food supply chains. We've done that with manufacturing as well. And what it has resulted is, and is a very consumption-oriented culture that has trillions of dollars in credit card debt, trillions and trillions of dollars in student loan debt, trillions and trillions of dollars in housing debt. And it's all debt fueled because we've divorced production from consumption. But eventually at the end of the day, the, the debt does come due. You do have to pay the bill. And what I'm concerned about is when that bill does come due, it's going to be a reckoning because we are over consuming and that overconsumption, that story of sustenance to abundance, because the problem with abundance is when you're trying to aggregate everything and when you've divorced consumption from production, it's very easy to overproduce. And that is detrimental to your, to your natural resources. And we see that all around the world. We see that with massive deforestation in environmentally sensitive areas like the Amazon. We see massive water withdrawals in places like Punjab, India. Uh, we see massive water withdrawals in the Central Valley of California. We see massive water withdrawals in the Ugogala Reservoir there in the Midwestern United States. And we have to consider, is the current agri-food system sustainable from a resource perspective? And the answer increasingly is no. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder if we can even take it a step further because sustainability and climate change and some of these words get politicized for reasons that I can't understand. Um, but... I mean, for me, one of the most out, like ridiculous statistics out there is that the United States wastes about 30 to 40% of the food that it produces each year anyway, um, which is just insane to me. If, if a system is efficient, you wouldn't think that there would be 40% waste in the system. If you were in any other industry or if you were in a factory or at a, at a tech company or something like that, and you were wasting 40% of the output of your company, uh, that wouldn't be efficiency. You wouldn't get rewarded for that. You wouldn't be the sort of envy of the world for that sort of thing. And it's not just the United States. That's just the, the statistic I have at my hand. I mean, if you look at you know multiple countries around the world, the percentage of food waste is super high. And I guess I guess some of that is that we're transporting things over long distance. I guess some of that is is there's just just not good enough infrastructure. But it seems to me that there's really a and you sort of alluded to it. There's just this societal cultural thing where we expect the food that we want to be there at the grocery store, no matter what time of year it is, even that's not how the world is supposed to work. And going into the area of food waste, because there's different places food waste can break down. You can happen in the farm because of disease pressures. It can happen when you're transporting the goods across long distances. That's often a problem uh, in developing countries. You see that a lot of food waste being in the field because of disease or food waste being lost in transport. That tends to happen in the developed, developing world. In the developed world, it's a bit different. Most of our food waste is coming out of restaurants and out of consumers. I mean, think about how many times we've gone to the restaurant, ordered food, we can't eat too much, and so, okay, whatever, just take it away, and it just gets thrown away. Or places like fast food restaurants, they'll have pre-made food uh, and like the little takeout boxes or whatever and, and bagels. At the end of the day, they often have to throw it away because they can't reuse the food the following day. And so that's food waste. Or how many times have we gone out and created food for ourselves and it gets shoved into a random corner of our fridge and marinates in that fridge for five, six weeks and you pull it out and you, and you see this ungodly concoction of science at work and you're just like, I'm just going <laughs> to throw this away because I don't want to touch this because I'm afraid to open up and find what's in it. That's food waste. And so 80% of the food waste in the United States is actually from consumer facing businesses and it takes place in the homes. 
And so if we want to reduce food waste, we just need to consume what we purchase. Yeah. And I mean, just to, to bring this point home for folks, cause I, I, again, these things are abstract, you can't always, um, quantify them, but, um, there was a 2009 study that found that a quarter of the total freshwater consumption in the United States got wasted on food. Um, that food waste was the equivalent of something like 300 million barrels of oil per year, just to sort of put some different kinds of statistics around there. I mean, that doesn't sound to me like a supply chain that is working particularly sufficiently, but Nathan, I, I, I can hear that we agree with each other and we could probably rail about this all day. Um, how do we go forward? How, for, well, I guess two things. How do you think things should go forward and how do you think they will go forward? Are those two different things or do you think that what you want is actually what's going to happen next? I do think things are going to move forward because we have a very brittle supply chain and we need to make this movement from, okay, we've moved from sustenance to abundance and now we need to move to resiliency. We need to redesign our supply chain so producers are physically closer to consumers. Because right now we have a very unstable system and we could have what's called a systems collapse. And I'm not saying there's going to be a systems collapse, but I want to have a thought experiment here. Because to have a systems collapse, you need the following variables. You need very, very highly concentrated nodes. You need high interconnectivity and interdependence. And they need systems that are overly engineered for efficiency. So think you know, just-in-time inventory systems, very little leeway, very highly engineered, razor-thin margins, and then systems that are very over-leveraged. That is, they're very, very highly in debt. And when you think about the world and you think about the issue of debt, it, it's, I mean, it's great. It's easy to lever up on debt and to invest in investments that are only getting, say, 1%, 2% return because when zero, interest rates are 0% because the Federal Reserve money printer is going, Bert, it's, it makes sense to invest. <laughs> But what happens when interest rates go up? What happens if interest rates go up to 3%? You're only getting 1%, 2% interest rates. I mean, it's 1%, 2% return. What do you do then? The bill comes due. And what I'm concerned about is because of how interconnected all these supply chains are, because of what we saw with COVID-19 with the pork producers, just that, that example, mm -hmm. the example that you brought up, Jacob, about in the counties out in California, that over-concentration. If a few of these systems all go down because of natural disasters or political shocks or what have you, you're going to have a mess on your hands. So the only way to resign the system to avoid a systems collapse is to fragment it, to decentralize it, to diversify your risk. And so the way I can see this evolving, particularly for fruits and vegetables, is that you are going to see more production closer and more localized, and it's going to take place in urban agriculture environments. There's some incredible work that's being done up in Quebec, I believe it is, with urban agriculture there and where they're able to supply a large number of their food needs just based on some urban agriculture facilities because now it's producing local instead of being transported 1,500 miles, it's being transported, say, 15 miles instead of having to breed and produce crops that are designed to be shipped 1,500 miles, produced three weeks later. Now they can be bred in such a way that they're produced only a week later, shipped 15 miles. And now you can begin to focus on other variables such as taste and nutrition. And it completely changes the game that we, in the way we think about the agri-food system. How realistic is that? Do, do you feel like that, that that's a thing that could actually work? I mean, when I think of like fresh organic produce at the store or going to the farmer's market, I think in terms of paying, you know, triple or quadruple the cost um, to account for the increased cost of production for that particular product that I'm buying. 
um, which often means that, you know, the folks who are able to buy natural or organic or local are, you know, high upper middle class or who have discretionary income or who are not in a food desert can, and can actually afford it. I mean, do you think it's actually viable to create this kind of system at scale? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons we have the industrialized system we have today, because there's so many people in the world. And like you said, in order for the math to make work, in order for the economics of it to make work, you have to scale it. So how do, how do you scale local production like that? Is that even possible? So going back to this example of the hub and spoke versus the spider web. The thing to understand about a spider web network of food production and distribution is you are still going to have major production centers, going to be major threads that run through this system. And so California is always going to remain a major producer of fruits and vegetables. And Florida is going to be a major producer of fruits and vegetables as well and of citrus. Midwest is going to be this juggernaut of producing corn and soybeans. I mean, that's one of the things that you can't really grow in an urban agriculture environment. It's very difficult to grow that at scale. But for fruits and vegetables, you can definitely see that coming about. And it doesn't take a lot to drastically diversify your risk and to reduce that risk and of collapse. Because if you have urban agriculture facilities with advancements in greenhouse technology, with advances in breeding, with advances in plant nutrition, you're seeing a movement. And in fact, Bear Crop Science invests a lot of money in vertical agriculture environments as well, because they see this as the future. And this future is happening right now. Walt Disney World um, there in Orlando actually produces a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, vertically, all vertically integrated for its uh, amusement parks and for its own restaurants and its own consumption. And it has one of the largest greenhouse and hydroponic facilities in North America. It's astounding. I've been blessed to be able to tour it. And so we're seeing some of this right now. And is it going to be affordable at first? No. But how many of us could afford the smartphone, the iPhone, when it was first released? We are seeing the first generation, the first generation, just like very few people could afford computers, this is not going to be affordable at first, but as we begin to have our innovation iterations, our different versions, it's going to become more and more affordable. And I think it is foreseeable to see areas in which we're producing food locally where big metropolitan areas, they might be able to produce maybe 10, 15, 20, maybe 30% of their food. I'm throwing out some arbitrary numbers here, but mm -hmm. it doesn't take a lot of local production to totally change the game to reduce the overall stress on our agri-food system in a very big and a very powerful way. Yeah. The difficulty with that example though, is that, I mean, one of the reasons we can afford iPhones or smartphones or whatever it is, is because, um, you know, China was mining the rare earth metals and minerals that we needed, uh, excuse me, was, was mining the rare earth metals for phones super cheaply and without thinking about the environment. And they were getting assembled in different countries where workers were getting paid, were getting paid much lower than they would have in the United States. And so I can go to the store and get the iPhone for a couple hundred bucks, or I guess it's probably over a thousand bucks right now because they've been able to diminish the cost of all those different inputs into it. Um, which it seems to be, which is one of the problems with food, because if you have this incentive to keep lowering the cost and lowering the cost, you're going to get to industrialized agriculture and you know widespread use of pesticides and fatten things up quickly and use hormones and use antibiotics to make sure that you can get the thing you know as quick as you can and the just-in-time sort of service that you talked about. So it seems to me that the system itself um, and just the nature of food itself is is not naturally geared towards the market working out that way because if you leave food to the market. Um, you're basically sacrificing the quality of the food for the cost. And that gets us in the kind of pickle that we're in right now, right? 
So I, I don't think so, because when you think about localized food production, the biggest factor, constraining factor, I would say, to widespread urban agriculture environment is the cost of energy. And as we mm. see continued innovations um, because of fracking, for one, reducing the cost of natural gas, we see this new iteration in green technologies such as solar and wind power. We see innovations, a new movement for nuclear power. And all these factors combined lead to reducing of energy costs per capita in the United States, which is going to make it more economical for production of food. And the other thing to consider is the cost of transportation, because it costs a lot of money to produce food and ship it across the continent. And that's the model that we're using today. It's a lot cheaper when you can produce it locally and ship it, like I said, 15 miles. And the way it's going to work out initially is it's going to be marketed towards the high-end restaurants. It's going to be high marketed towards the people who have a large disposable income, who can afford these luxury food items already. And that's going to be the first round of sales and marketing strategy. But as the technology improves, as we learn how to better design these urban agriculture environments, as we learn how to better manage plant production in food production in urban agriculture environments, we're going to be able to increase our output. And that's going to lead to reduction in overall costs. Do you think this is scalable globally, though? I mean, like right now, I think it's like roughly 15% of the world's population depends on food that is produced elsewhere. Um, there's a UN study that says by 2050, literally 50% of the, of the food that people consume is going to be consumed elsewhere rather than within that 15 mile radius. Um, when I was prepping for this podcast, I saw there was a UN food and agriculture organization report that, that, um, said there were only a couple countries in the world that can claim to have food self-sufficiency. Um, they are real fast, you know, France, Canada, Australia, Russia, India, Argentina, Myanmar, Thailand, and the U S a couple small other ones. Um, what happens to exports in this world that you're imagining that is more spider webby and is more about local production? Is that just, do, do farmers need to recalibrate and think locally, or is there still a place for large scale exports in this world that you're dreaming of? I mean, there's definitely going to be room for exports. And like I said, it's not like the entire food system that we know it is just going to vanish into thin air. You are still going to have exports of commodities, especially, like I said, Corn and soybean exports are still going to be huge because there's only a few nations in the world that have the arable land and the ability and the climate and all these incredible factors that go along that make for the large-scale production and export of key grains. As fruits and vegetables, it's a little bit more difficult because they perish a lot faster. And I think that's where you see this urban act, the most opportunity for these urban agriculture environments. When you consider the fact that by 2050, the overwhelming majority of humanity is going to be living in urban environments. And so the ability to produce food locally is going to be a major boon to these cities and to these countries. And this is where the United States and other developed countries have an opportunity to kind of work out the kinks, to find ways to produce these technologies here and now to perfect them, to make them cost efficient and then be able to export these technologies and these best practices to other countries. I mean, the industrialization um, and economic growth that is happening in Africa and how Africa has already adopted so many cellular-based technologies. They're using cell phones for banking. They're using cell phones to get market data, real-time market data and crop advising already. And it's completely revolutionizing agricultural production 
in sub-Saharan Africa. And that's just one example right there. And so I think there is the ability to integrate these technologies, but it's going to be up to developed countries to find ways to have this technology to equip developing countries with both the tools and the financial resources to partner with them to create these win-win solutions where other countries can take more control of their own destinies and be more self-sufficient. And so that way they can derive policy decisions which are best for their own people. Yeah, I think the future of of agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa is one of the biggest geopolitical issues of the 2020s that nobody is talking about. Um, and and Afri- Sub-Saharan Africa is in some ways exhibit A of, of how the system, I think, is a little bit fundamentally broken because you've got a lot of African countries that have focused on just a couple cash crops and who focus on exporting those and then have to import lots of food that they could be growing themselves. And you get into this vicious cycle where they're selling the cash crop and then they're importing the other crops because they don't have stuff there. Their yields are, are way lower compared to other countries. Um, I'm glad to hear that they're using some technology, but historically they're you know, the adoption of technology of, of cutting edge agricultural technology and techniques in sub-Saharan Africa has been behind the curve. Um, and as you said, that that's really the place that is growing demographically in the world over the course of the next 20, 30 years, you're going to have more urbanization, um, which creates some of the dynamics you talked about. It also leads to more land degradation. So I, I really, I would just highlight how important that's going to be going forward and whether African policymakers and African farmers can align their interests and create a more sustainable path forward, I think will will go a long way towards determining not just future food supply chains, but geopolitical stability throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And one of the important things, just to add on to that, that the United States has a huge advantage of compared to the rest of the world is our, our land-grant university system. Because every single state, and this was enacted by President Lincoln uh, back in the Civil War, every single state has a land-grant university. Oh yes, you are you are talking to a Cornell alum here, Nathan. So shout out to uh, Cornell University. We love it. Love the and, land grant. Oh yeah, I gotta give a shout out to everybody at University of Florida and Purdue University. Just two amazing schools <laughs> that were just huge in just in my education over the years. But these land grant universities, they have extension agents in every single county as well, and said so it provides free crop advising and and farm advice to growers all across the United States. And so that education system for growers to be able to get quality information to be able to quickly enact best practices, best management practices is incredible. And then you merge that with the farm credit system where farmers can easily access loans in a very favorable environment so where they can repay it in an affordable manner. Because Farming is very cyclical. You have you have a lot of cost up front, but you don't get the cash to pay it off until the very, very end. And so you need to have a loan that's structured in such a way that is mindful of those constraints. And so there's a lot of growers in other developing countries, in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in India, where you don't have large plots of land, you don't have access to a formal line of credit, you don't have access to education. And so even if you can't afford these new seeds or new fertilizers or new pesticides, you don't know how to use them properly. And so that leads to a lot of waste, over-fertilization, overuse of pesticides, and this creates a lot of other negative externalities. I mean, and you consider just overwatering and the water scarcity issue. It's just a vicious cycle. And so you have to be able to go into these local communities. You have to provide them both education and training, you know, teaching a man to fish rather than just giving him a fish. And then also giving him access to a line of credit so he can begin to afford and integrate these new technologies. Yeah, Nathan, so 
one of the things you brought up um, before we got on the podcast was about, um, and you know, this is changing topic a little bit here, and it's unfortunately not an un- not an uplifting topic. Um, you talked about you, you told me about how farmer suicide rates are are way higher than I would have expected them to be, and I would guess that some of this has to do with what we were talking about earlier, where farmers really aren't they're earning less of every share of the dollar of the of the things that they produce, um, and as we're going through this period of transformation and disruption, some of it's due to COVID-19, some of it's due to the system itself being overburdened or being overly concentrated. Um, Talk to to the listeners a little bit about those stats about farmer suicide rates and and tell me why you think that's happening and and what a path forward for fixing that problem is. And so there was some research that was done a couple of years ago um, out of California Polytechnic, and they found out that suicide rates in agriculture are about five times higher than national average in the U.S. and they're even twice as high as the rate of for, compared to military veterans. And you look at it historically, suicide rates are 50% higher today than they were during the farm crisis in the 1980s. And so you have these deaths of despair. You have farmers that feel like they don't have anything. They, they've lost everything. They've lost their identity because they can no longer farm. And it's, it, it's frightening. And this is something we see overseas as well, particularly in India. I think it's something like 300,000 people, Indian farmers, have committed suicide since the mid-90s. It's just absolutely astounding, just the mental health impacts, because you know growers, they're exposed. They are absolutely exposed to the weather. They're exposed to the market. They're exposed to the whims of their society. They're exposed to the whims of government policy. It's going to affect them. So they are totally and completely exposed. And so when you have an agricultural system that is not working for growers, where they can't afford to produce, they can't afford to grow, and they are committing suicide in record numbers. That screams to me that you have a system that is at its core fundamentally broken, is a system that is unstable, it is a system that is in need of significant and drastic reform. And it's finding a way, again, going back to this idea of using technology to better connect growers and consumers, producers and consumers. How do we shrink that geographic distance? How do we shrink that distance in the supply chain, reducing the number of intermediaries? And so you can reforge those relationships and create that better sense of community, that sense of belonging, that growers have a vital role to play in society, not just in the United States, but around the world, because we all got to eat. The clothes that we have on our back are coming from farmers that grew the textiles. And so would you would, would you characterize sort of the situation of the American farmer as as in a crisis situation? I mean, do you feel like they're in a crisis and they need that level of support? Because I mean, I, I know that they've that American farmers have been been struggling, particularly in light of um, the trade war with China, because a lot of them were depending on exports to China. But I mean, some some of these statistics that that you've brought up here are, are just mind boggling to me. I mean, how bad do things have to get before we get? Um, a system that reshapes itself or before we get targeted policy support for the folks that are on the front lines here who provide the things that, like you say, we need to survive on a daily basis. I mean, we've seen just an incredible number of um, bankruptcies. We are seeing close to several hundreds of hundreds upon hundreds of bankruptcies. Uh, I think it's like 500 bankruptcies and farmers back in 2018. I mean, it was like 5,000 back in the mid eight mid 80s. So it's significantly higher, both in absolute terms and per capita terms as compared to today. I think it's half the per capita rate as opposed to the 1980s. So we're nowhere near that level of collapse in the farm economy. But stresses in the farm economy tend to predicate stresses in the overall US economy. When you think back to the Great Depression, we had 
a massive bust in the farm economy in the 1920s. We had a massive bust in the farm economy in the 1970s, 1980s. We're seeing a massive bust in the farm economy today that really predates back to 2014, 2015, and is continuing on today. And so this is showing that maybe the entire U.S. economic system might be in a reset. That's a different discussion for a different day, but it just shows that something's not right. And what's very interesting as well is that for the longest time, growers in the Midwest, so corn, soybean, where a lot of agricultural production takes place, they weren't making any money. Um, the average profit per acre, I did research at Purdue University from 1990 to 2006, was $131 per acre. But when they had the Energy Independence Act, which created corn ethanol, and then China begins importing massive amounts of soybean in 2007, it jumped up to $241 per acre in terms of farm incomes. And that helped create some wealth back. But now that we're seeing questioning, is corn ethanol the best use of our resources? Is it economically viable? The trade impacts with China, these exogenous factors, we're seeing that, again, that vulnerability within the U.S. farm economy. Yeah, and, for, and here's another area where geopolitics seems to intrude. And I mean, I've, I've said this at multiple conferences now, and I've said this to clients in the past. I mean, if you're a U.S. farmer, or if you're, if you're a farmer anywhere, Canada, Australia, anywhere, um, you know, China's going to buy, is going to want to buy products from you. And if you can make some money in the Chinese market, more power to you. Uh, but you really need to start thinking of the Chinese market as bonus, not as the backbone of your business. And to your point, um, if you're going to build sort of a resilient business and you're going to be um, in agriculture, you're going to be an agribusiness in general. Um, I really do think you do need to think more in terms of um, localization, of shorter supply chains, of fewer intermediaries. The the more that you can, um, you know, make sure that you you make enough on that score before you start exporting, rather than thinking that you know the global trading system is going to keep working the way that it is, especially with all these geopolitical tensions, the better off you're going to be. Because, yeah, China might buy a bunch of your canola or a bunch of your soy this year. Um, but they might not next year. And it might be because of political differences between your two governments. It might be because somebody else had a bumper crop that gets sold cheaper. I mean, you're never going to know, but it's, it's just not a stable enough source of income, I think, to base, um, to base future revenue on. And when you think about exports of commodities, I mean, you have questions of Brazil. I mean, if Brazil ever begins to invest heavily in events, if it's infrastructure and turn things around there, Brazil is very well positioned to be a low cost provider of soybeans. Same thing with Argentina. And so there are going, and now Ukraine is becoming a major producer of corn. And so U.S. farmers are facing greater competitive pressures around the world. And so there is a need to rethink how we operate as a farm economy, both for corn, soybean, row crops out in the Midwest, for the production of fruits and vegetables in the Southeast and out in California, to how we produce um, meats. So poultry, pork, beef, et cetera. We have to rethink these things. We got to think long and hard because, well, change is coming. Change is inevitable. And so, again, going back to this idea, we have very brittle systems that aren't working anymore. We can see that in profits for growers. We can see that in farm suicide rates. We can see that in the disruptions to our supply chain that was caused by COVID-19. And so how do we move forward? And I think moving towards this decentralized model, promoting local production, I, urban agriculture is one way to reduce that strain. And it's about diversifying that risk. It's not the silver bullet that's going to solve all of our problems, but it is a potential solution. 
Yeah, and it just it also just underscores how much power the consumer has. I mean, one of the reasons the United States is such a powerful economic force, it's not just the size of the US economy, although it's huge, it's the fact that the US consumes so much, that folks are dependent on the US consuming things. Um, and because the US therefore gets to rely a little bit less on exports. Um, when it comes to food, that, that actually starts to flip a little bit because China is such a center of, of global consumption right now and is becoming even more of a center of global consumption that it gets a lot of the leverage and it gets a lot of the power. So this isn't just about, you know, I, 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 you can sort of tell my bias here. I, I like organic food and I go to the local farmer, farmer's market. I grew up on a small farm. Like that's just sort of the thing that I, I go towards. But also from a foreign policy basis, um, it's really important for countries to not be so dependent on their consumers, to not take the easy money and actually think about how food plugs into their local systems and how that all has to be part of a unified economy. If, if you're going to move away from globalization, if you're going to start reshoring supply chains and, and having pr you know, selective protectionism on, on um, semiconductors or things like that, food's going to get in there at some point too, because even though it's something that we all depend on to survive, that, that almost makes the importance of it at that strategic level even more serious. I mean, that's one of the reasons why food prices are higher in other countries. I mean, Europe is notorious for all of its protections related to non-tariff barriers, to you know, not allowing for any sort of genetically modified uh, organisms whatsoever. Japan, up until very, very recently, was very protectionist when it came to agriculture because Japan doesn't have a lot of arable land, and it's very worried that if its trade supply lines are severed, the country is going to starve. And so the trade-off policy decision is Japan was like, okay, we'll take higher food prices in order to preserve and protect our agricultural capacity and to protect our farmers. And the United States has had the luxury of not having to worry as much because we have so, many, so much good arable land, but we are still starting to see some of that. One of the crazy things that's happened, so state of Florida used to be a major, major producer of tomatoes, but that all changed under NAFTA because Mexico began to really dump uh, tomatoes on the market. There's studies that have been done. It's been a massive problems of trade complaints. Uh, the former commissioner of agriculture, Adam Putnam, complained about it. He was a Republican. The current commissioner of agriculture, Nikki Fried, has complained about it. She's a Democrat, so there's a bipartisan consensus. And the acreage of tomatoes down in just South Florida and around Immokalee, it was 100,000 acres of tomatoes. Today, there's less than 20,000 acres of tomatoes in the entire state of Florida. The entire industry has just been gutted because of trade. And one of the interesting things that happened because of the trade war with Mexico and because of COVID-19, a lot of the local grocery stores have gone out and trying to get local production and buy up local goods. But then they realize, wait, there aren't any farms left because they've all been put out of business because of trade, because of Mexico dumping products on the market. And you think about the aspect of trade, that's dangerous because we have to have this balance between, yeah, you want cheap food, but if all your farmers are going out of business because of this trade, well, now this other country has leverage over you in terms of food because your people got to eat. And so there's a trade-off balance between self-sufficiency and being able to feed your own population, but also being able to afford it. Nathan, the next question I'm going to ask you is slightly in jest, but only slightly. I was I was reading some CDC data, and this was another statistic that blew my mind. Um, for the most recent year that they had, which was 2017, 2018, the prevalence of obesity in the United States was 42.4%. Um, and a, a lot of that obesity, it was, it was higher in, in the South, where both of you and I hail from. 
Um, why, why are we so fat as a culture? Did you have any answer to that question? Cause I, I can't figure out why we're so fat and it, it bothers me. It, it tells me that there's maybe something wrong with, with society or with our culture. The fact that we, um, you know, there, there are people who suffer from hunger and all these other things. And we're talking about how a food supply chain is broken. And yet such a large percentage of the country is overweight. I, I don't get it. C- can you explain it to me? I got two words for you. <laughs> Fried chicken. Wa- oh, I was going to say waffle house. <laughs> I mean, Waffle House too. I mean, hey, chicken and waffles are amazing, dude. I mean, I, I, I absolutely love them myself. But I mean, all joking aside, but you know, think about it, fried chicken. We like our fried foods. We as Americans love meat. I mean, we are massive, massive carnivores. We're like the biggest carnivores on the planet, just about. But that overconsumption of meat has detrimental health effects because meat is very caloric dense. And that's why we love it so much. It's from an evolutionary biological perspective, we like these high density, high fat goods. And so we have a tendency to overconsume them partially because food is so cheap. And I mean, that's just a side effect. But when you think about moving forward, and this is where it gets, again, very, very interesting. We have this problem of obesity. We have this problem with the American population getting older and older, which is going to be driving up healthcare costs. So how do you reduce healthcare costs? How do you solve this problem of obesity? Well, one of the easiest ways to do is to focus on preventive medicine, and the best form of preventive medicine out there is a better diet. And so we need to have policies, and Michelle Obama did an excellent, excellent job of addressing the problem of food deserts. Now, we found out that even though you can lead a horse to water, you can't make it drink, just because you have food in a location doesn't mean people are going to start eating it. So you need to have that educational component and teaching people the importance of healthy food and healthy diets by getting nutritious food, fresh fruits and vegetables into our schools to start getting kids to like these foods at a very, very early age. And so that is critical. But by focusing on a better diet, more consumption of fruits and vegetables, less processed food, less meat, because meat also requires a lot of food. 40% of U.S. corn goes to uh, animal feed. And so you think about all the resources, all the water, all the fertilizer, all the pesticides, all these external impacts that go into producing the beef, producing the pork, producing the poultry, it has secondary impacts. And the steer statistical reality is you, there are not enough natural resources to feed the world on an American-based meat-dominant diet. So we have to eat less meat, and we need to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables, eat, need to eat more grains, need to diversify our diet. Yeah, the the pessim well not the pessimist, the realist in me just thinks that the situation's gonna have to get a lot worse before there is change. And I, I think this has to be a cultural shift and a societal shift. I, I think we've forgotten just how remarkable it is um that you can go to a grocery store and expect to get just about anything that you want. Um it's it's pretty miraculous that, you know, we can put something in the ground. And a couple months later, it comes out of the ground and we eat it. Or, you know, it's if it's meat, then that we we raise these animals to slaughter. And then we can, you know, just walk into a restaurant and get a cheeseburger. Like, it's incredible that that's happened. And I think in some ways we've taken it for granted. Um, and we don't understand that it's not always this way. Um, and even though we've gotten used to, as you say, a culture of abundance, of, of being able to go in and get anything that we want, until we are willing to accept, accept some limitations on that, um, probably things are just going to continue as they are until there is some real disruption and suddenly people can't actually get things and then they're going to realize there's a change. I think in that sense, COVID-19, it was just a, 
it was just a little hint. It was just a little stress on the system that showed you how brittle it was because there was that time where it looked like COVID-19 was going to shut down all pork production and the workers weren't going to be able to go out and actually harvest things. And, and, and there was this real fear um, that there wasn't going to be, be food at the grocery store. That didn't come to fruition, but for a couple of weeks it was. Um, and I, I just feel like something like that's going to have to happen for a longer sustained period for us to get to the point where people are going to be willing to make the kind of huge changes you're talking about here. It's not something that's just going to happen at a policy level or just because we wake up one morning and decide to. It's really hard. Once, you, once you're used to being able to have an avocado any time of day, like you want the avocado, you know? You are absolutely right, Jacob. And that is honestly the thing that keeps me up at night. That's the thing that absolutely terrifies me. Because we are so used um, and feel so entitled to having everything we want exactly the way we want it, when we want it, especially true with food. You know, strawberries in Florida, our season, big production is around January, February, March, April. Those are the big seasons, you know. And yet in Florida, we have strawberries year round at the grocery store, not just in season. And it's the same thing with everything else. We have gotten used to having everything on demand, and that has a cost. And I do worry about this overconsumption because we feel so entitled and that we are utilizing our resources in an irresponsible manner and that this could lead to a systems collapse. And for the developed world, I think a systems collapse is going to resemble like a, a Great Depression 2.0 scenario where everything just freezes up because we're in this abundance and everything just freezes up and it's just not moving the way it should. But for the developing world, a world that's already existing on that knife's edge between sustenance and abundance, it's going to look like scarcity. It could look like famine. And, and I want to be clear, I'm not just I'm not predicting a total systems collapse here. I'm not doing that. But I'm warning that our assumptions that our systems are built upon our certainty are fundamentally flawed. And we live in a world of increased uncertainty. And those uncertainty coming from exogenous shocks outside of our control, they're going to happen so we better be prepared. All right, Nathan, um, this has been great. Anything you want to, anything that we didn't talk about that you want to bring up now, Nathan, or is, is that uh, uplifting enough for the listeners to end, a note, to end on? Um, there's one thing I, I do want to end on, mm -hmm. and it was an experience that I had back in November before all this COVID-19 madness hit. I was blessed to be a part of this program, incredible program, called the Youth Ag Summit. And the Youth Ag Summit was instrumental in just my understanding of agriculture and geopolitics. Uh, I was part of this program back in 2013 up in Calgary, Canada, and stayed in contact with this network. And back in 2019, I was invited to be part of the 2019 Youth Ag Summit down in Brasilia, Brazil. Uh, the Youth Ag Summit is sponsored by Bear Crop Science. It brings 100 students from all around the world to discuss global sustainability and food security issues. And at this conference, I was able to mentor other, these other students and also learn from them and was running workshops on sustainability and food security. She's talking about a lot of these issues that you and I are talking about, Jacob. But what I learned there is there's so many incredible young minds out there, and they are all working on a different part of this problem independently. And they are coming up with these crazy, crazy solutions, you know, using... Uh, bacteria to increase agriculture production to re reduce the need uh, for nitrogen, uh, using biological controls instead of pesticides, uh, using sensors in produce in Bangladesh 
to be able to monitor temperatures, to be able to reduce food waste that way. I mean, these are just some of the examples, but there's a hundred different solutions that were come up with by these hundred different delegates. And so I think there is hope in all this, but we just need to make sure that we stay open, that we're keeping on these lines of communication, that we are brutally honest, first and foremost, with the problems that we face. But just because we face enormous problems doesn't mean that we can't come up with equally enormous and monumental solutions. I mean, we think about Paul Ehrlich and the population bombed and how you know everything was going to collapse. And then this gentleman from Iowa called Norman Borlaug comes along and he creates the green revolution and suddenly the world can feed itself and it changed everything. And so we need a green revolution 2.0 and I have confidence that it's going to happen. We just need to keep our heads up and we need to keep working hard and not give up. Well, that might be the most uplifting ending note of any of, of any perch pod, and I, I appreciate your optimism, Nathan. I, I hope that our conversation today has has at least you know I, I don't I don't think we've landed on any answers, but it seems to me that we've at least got our finger on on the problem, and and there are possibilities out there to help fixing it. So we super appreciate you taking the time to come on, and um, hope you'll join us again soon, and hopefully we'll we'll be able to talk about the progress that we've made in fixing some of these problems rather than having to to bemoan. Uh, some of the inefficiencies in the system that something like COVID-19 has caused. So thanks, Nathan. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.